0: Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible study teaching podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Okay, so the key word is better. Remember? Better. Jesus is better. The New Testament is better, the New Covenant's better, uh, Jesus is better than Moses, he's better than the angels, all this whole issue of better, 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 that's the whole theme of the book of Hebrews, and because if you remember, these Christians were tempted to go back into Judaism, and he keeps reminding them, don't go back into Judaism, because what you have now in Christ is better. And so what he's going to do here is he's going to really kind of bring this to a crescendo. So we are in chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. What he's going to do here is he's going to use seven as kind of a biblical number. And he's going to show seven issues related to the Old Testament. Remember all along we've been looking at comparing the New Covenant to the Old Covenant. He's going to give seven issues related to the Old Testament believers at Mount Sinai. Remember, Mount Sinai is where Moses delivered the law. And he's going to contrast that with seven blessings that we now receive at Mount Zion, um, which we'll talk about what that means. So it's, it's, it's this number seven. So let's read Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. All right. For you have not come... You've not come to what may not be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and the voice whose words made the hearers beg no further messages be spoken to them. For night could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. For if they did not escape, when they refused Him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject Him who warns from heaven. At that time His voice shook the earth. But now He's promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Okay, so what are these seven things that he says are related to Mount Sinai? And we'll talk about where we get that. Number one, they came to what could not be touched. If you remember, God said you can't even touch the mountain. Even if an animal touches the mountain, the animal will be stoned. Blazing fire. Coming off the mountain, darkness, gloom, a tempest, the sound of a trumpet, and a powerful voice. Now, this all comes from Exodus chapter 19. So keep your finger in Hebrews chapter 12, and let's go back to the Old Testament like we often have been doing week by week to understand these images that he's using. He's drawing us directly back to what happened in Exodus 19. So let's pick up in um, verse, well, look at verse 12. And you shall set limits for the people And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord, and look, and many of them perish. Also let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot... Come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself have warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up, bringing Aaron with you. But do not let the priest and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Next chapter is the Ten Commandments. Okay, So you guys just tell me, what are some images here of the mountain? Is, is this a pleasant, happy occasion? It's scary, isn't it? There's thunder, there's lightning, there's fire, there's gloom, there's trumpets. There, You can't touch the map. It, it almost seems as if God is unapproachable. God's on Mount Sinai and he says, Moses, you can come up, but the people dare not even come close or they will be incinerated. For I'm about to give you my law. And it says there in Hebrews that Moses was terrified. Um, Deuteronomy 9.19, For I was afraid, it says, This is uh, Moses. I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you so that He was ready to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me that time also. What was the issue with everything that happened at Mount Sinai? Was it complete? Did it save? Did it offer full, complete salvation to the very core of who we are? No, it was the giving of the law. It was the old covenant. Okay? It had its time, it had its place, but what are, these, what are these Hebrew Christians tempted to do? Go back to the mountain. Go back to Mount Sinai, which is, which is fearful. And he says, listen, that's not who you are. You do not go back to Mount Sinai. Instead, you're coming to a different mountain. You're coming to a different place. That, that's the old covenant. You are now in the new covenant. And so in verse 22, back to Hebrews... Hebrews 12, 22. the writer shifts to contrasting this old covenant, fearful experience at the base of Mount Sinai with trumpets and thunder and God speaking and trumpets blaring with seven blessings of the new covenant. So what are these seven blessings in contrast to the seven dreadful things that all right, so what's the big issue, guys? What, what was the one thing about Mount Sinai for a moment here? Mount Sinai, what, if, you could, if you could basically categorize or characterize the experience that we just read in Exodus 19, what one or two words would capture what that was all about? Fear. fear. Okay, fear and what? Death. Okay, death. But what, what was the whole issue? You can't come near. You can't come up. You can't even touch the mountain. Okay? Even the priests who were called out by God had to get themselves ready. Okay? Now, what's he been arguing all along in Hebrews? What What do we have the ability to do now because of Jesus? We can come up. We can come near. We have access to the very throne of God in the new covenant. And so what we're going to see here are these blessings of, of being able to come near to God in the new covenant. So here's blessing number one. We've come to Mount Zion. That's then an old song, we're marching to Zion. Beautiful, beautiful Zion. Yeah, that's an old song. You can't hear, that's because I can't sing. Uh, Verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. Now, I do not think what he's talking about here is a literal place in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount, but a symbolic image of being in God's presence forever, okay? He calls it the city of the living God. You've come to this city, um, When we think about the book of Revelation, no matter how you interpret it, and we're not going to get into that right now, but we have this whole idea that I looked and behold on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with Him 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads, Then I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of a loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one can learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. Okay, this is not the Jehovah's Witness literal 144,000 that came back in the late 1800s. This is symbolic of God's people in heaven. But where are they? They were singing a new song before the throne in heaven, the Mount Zion. But notice what he says there. You've come to the city of the living God. Where else have we seen the city imagery? Go back to chapter 11. Remember the hall of faith? What was Abraham and all those guys looking for? Go back to chapter 11. Look at verse 10. This is about Abraham. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations whose designer and builder is God. Go down to verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak this way make it clear they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared for them a city." So this is heaven. This is the heavenly Jerusalem. This is the heavenly city. This is the throne room of God. So blessing number one, that the writer of Hebrews says, listen, one day you will have access to God's throne in heaven, the city of the living God. What's going to happen when you get there? Number two, we will experience a joyous gathering with the angels. Look there um, in verse... um, the second half of verse 22 the heavenly jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering does anybody have a different word besides festal joyful i have joyful assembly. joyful assembly anybody have like joyful festive when we think about this word, um, in the Greek culture, that word, it's kind of a rare word in the Bible, but it was really associated with, like, a party or celebration you had when you won the Olympics. So, don't have this image of heaven. A lot of people have this weird image of heaven, like we're going to be up there in diapers on clouds, you know, plunking a harp for eternity, okay? <laughs> heaven help us if that's heaven, Okay. <laughs> It's going to be a joyous party like and when I say party like I don't mean like worldly party which but like a jo- why is it going to be joyful with all these innumerable angels why is being in heaven going to be joyful because we have direct access to the living God and we are redeemed and so that's what we get to look forward to okay but while we wait to get there We have a third blessing that we get to experience right now. The third blessing is we are the assembly called the church. Notice verse 23. And to the assembly or the church, it's the the Greek word ekklesia, the assembly or the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Do you realize that Israel in the Old Testament was actually called the church? What's the word church mean? Let me just give you... um, This is the Greek word for church, ekklesia, okay? That's where we get the word ecclesiastical, okay? It comes from two words, ek, and this is actually the Greek word kaleo, okay? So this means called, or the called ones. Ek, the prefix means out we are the church is the called out ones who are gathered together in a body or an assembly in the old testament god would call out israel and gather them together as the church in the desert or, or the church in the wilderness in deuteronomy eighteen sixteen, just as you desire to the lord your god at horeb at sinai on the day of the assembly, when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, or see that great fire anymore, lest I die. Do you realize that at the base of Mount Sinai, when they gathered, the way that the, that's translated in the Bible is that they had church. They gathered together as an assembly at the base of Mount Sinai. But notice what it's the assembly of. To the church or to the called out ones of the firstborn. The idea of being, we are the firstborn in the sense that Israel was called God's firstborn son. In Exodus 4, 22 through 23, You shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Who is the ultimate? So Israel was God's firstborn son. Jesus, in a sense, is God's only begotten son. And because we're connected to Jesus, we are part of the church of, of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ. And where are we? We are enrolled in heaven. Speaks about your citizenship there. Do you know your name is in heaven if you're a Christian? It's written. What does Jesus say in Luke chapter 10, verse 20? He sends the, 20, the, the 72 out to do evangelism, to, do, um, you know, to, to preach the gospel. They come back, they're excited. What do the, the, the disciples say? Jesus, it was awesome. We we saw saw, demons getting cast out. We saw people getting healed. And Jesus says, you know, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. But this is what he said. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And in Revelation 21, 27, nothing unclean will ever enter it. That's the city. Not nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Okay. So you've if you're part of God's family, your name is written in heaven, it's heaven's on reserve for you, it's ready for you. When you get there, it's gonna be a joyful gathering with the angels to the heavenly city. Right now we get to experience the joy of being gathered together as a church. So basically you gotta keep right now. You gotta keep what? You don't need to keep your name in there because your name was written there before the foundations of the earth. If it was up to you to keep your name written there, then it wouldn't be salvation by grace. It would be something you would have to do to keep your name written there. Sure. Does, that, does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. You sure that makes sense? Yeah. Okay. Some people believe God, like if you were from a different church background, maybe somebody would say, you know, God writes your name in the Lamb's Book of Life, but He uses an eraser. Or he writes it in pencil. In case you're really bad, he'd erase it out of there. Uh, That's not what the Bible teaches. Once you're in there, by saving faith, you're in there, okay? All right. Uh, Blessing number four. He says, you've come to God who is our righteous judge. To the assembly of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all. Uh, Genesis 18.25 says this. This is when... um, well, this is, this is Abraham. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fares the wicked. Far be it that from you, shall you not the judge of all the earth do what is just? God is the judge of all the earth. Blessing number five. He says, we have been made perfect in righteousness. We've been made perfect in righteousness. Now, what does it mean perfect? Let's just talk about the word perfect here. Is that, is that word, when the Bible uses the word perfect, does that mean we never sin? No, It means complete or mature or we, 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 we're, we're, how God has designed us to be in Christ. Uh, look at chapter 10, verse 14. It says, For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So when Jesus died on the cross, He perfected us. He completed the the work of redemption. He saved us. We've been perfected in righteousness. Habakkuk 2.4, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. Okay? But now, verse 24, one of the greatest um, blessings here, blessing number six is what? We have... Jesus as the mediator of the new covenant. This whole idea of Jesus being the mediator of the new covenant shows up over and over again. We've already seen it. Go back to chapter 8, verse 6. We've already seen this back when we were looking at chapters 8, 9, and 10. Uh, Chapter 8, verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than then the old, as the covenant he mediates, is better, since it is enacted on better promises. He's the mediator of the better covenant. Chapter 9, verse 15. <coughs> Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Okay? And then this final one's interesting. It's caused a little bit of confusion about what it really means. Blessing 7 says, you've come to the final blessing. You've come to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, what in the world does that mean? So, he's referring back to Abel. Now, have we already seen Abel show up in Hebrews? Yes. Go back to Hebrews chapter 11. He's the first person first person mentioned in the hall of faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, what does the writer tell us about Abel? He, what has he already told us? What does the writer of Hebrews focus on Abel? By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. Okay, so here's the question. Is this speaking, when it talks about the blood being sprinkled, is it talking about Abel's death when Cain killed him? Or is it talking about Abel's sacrifice? If you remember when we went back and talked about Abel, what was unique about his sacrifice? Genesis 4.4. 4. How, did, how did Abel bring a sacrifice different than Cain's? Genesis 4.4, 4, Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of the fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. Here's the issue. Abel brought a blood sacrifice. Cain brought like a little fruit. And so what it's saying here is that Jesus has a better sacrifice even than Abel. Abel was the first person in the Bible to bring an acceptable sacrifice, and it was a blood sacrifice. He killed an animal a substituted animal. It was was acceptable. And what the writer of Hebrews is saying is that that first person who showed faith, Jesus is a better sacrifice because he is the most acceptable sacrifice to God. He sacrificed his own blood. It speaks a better word. The sprinkled blood of Jesus speaks a better word than even the very first person mentioned in the Bible who had the faith to bring the right type of sacrifice. Okay. So he kind of interludes here and says, listen, there's don't go back to Judaism. Don't go back to the fear of the Old Testament. Don't go back to the fear of Mount Sinai. You can come to God. You have access to heaven. You're going to be in heaven one day. You're going to see Jesus one day. It's going to be a joyful, festival gathering. You've got your sins forgiven. He's the mediator of the new covenant. Don't go back to that. And so he's going to be really strong on this. So here... In that last half, verses 25 through 29, we see the final warning passage in the book of Hebrews. There are five warnings, and we'll go back and look at these five. There are five warnings in the book of Hebrews. That's really the structure of his sermon. He, he's really structuring his sermon. Remember, Hebrews is a sermon preached to this congregation. He really structures it around five warnings, and then he fills in a lot of gaps with some theology. But, but basically what he's saying is this. He's saying, listen, if you've got better privileges in the new covenant, then how much more accountable are you to listening and not rejecting Christ if it was bad enough for them to reject in the Old Testament and you've got better promises it's going to be worse for you to reject now so how does he start verse 25 see to it see pay attention beware be careful that you don't what refuse reject this is a warning against apostasy remember what we talked about that Simply put, here's what it says. Here's what he's saying. How can we, who have entered into a saving relationship with the living God through Christ as our mediator, even begin to think of hardening our hearts and rebelling to the point of falling away? Notice what he says. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they, who's they there? Who's the they there? The Old Testament people. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on the earth, how much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? Again, this is a strong warning. This is the final. This is the fifth and final warning against apostasy. What is apostasy? It is the rejection, the refusal, the rebellion, the falling away from the faith. Remember, it's not losing your salvation It is, you're not saved and you're proving out you're not saved by wholeheartedly, stubbornly rejecting the gospel. Now we've seen these strong warnings before. And so as we, as we look at this, let's just go back. I know like we started back in September and we've looked over these warnings, but let's look at, at warning number one. So go back to chapter two, verse one. This is his first warning and they progressively get stronger as you go through. What was warning number one? Chapter two, verse one, we must pay closer attention to what we have learned lest we drift away. So what's warning number one? Don't drift. Okay. So, so drifting is, you know, when you drift, it's kind of this slow moving kind of unconscious at times drift. That's how it starts out. So, so warning one, number one, he says, don't like a boat that's drifting away from the shore without an anchor warning number 2 ok chapter 3 verse 12 this is warning number 2 take care that you don't have an unbelieving heart that leads you to fall away chapter 3 verse 12 take care brothers lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God then this is okay. Don't drift. Now watch watch your heart. If you have a hardened heart, an unbelieving heart, that could lead you to fall away. That unbelieving hardened heart could lead you to fall away. So, so watch your heart. Guard your heart. Okay? It's progressively getting worse. Or not worse, but stronger. The warnings. Okay, Warning number three. This was the one we spent a lot of time on in chapter six. It is impossible to restore to repentance one who's fallen away. Remember chapter six, verse four, it is impossible in the case of those who've once been enlightened, who've tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again, the son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. And if you remember, we talked about how those are not Evidences of salvation, that means that you were faking it or you just kind of had an association with the church. You really weren't saved, but you made a hard hearted, stubborn, persistent refusal and you turned away from God. And what the writer's saying is it's impossible. So drift, hard heart, it's impossible. Okay. The fourth warning, chapter 10. We must not go on sinning deliberately or face fiery judgment. Okay. Now he's bringing hell into the mix. Chapter 10 starts in verse 26. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume adversaries. So don't go on sinning deliberately. Don't drift. Don't harden your heart. Don't fall away. Don't keep on sinning deliberately. Okay, again, this is not... Let's just talk about apostasy again because it's a key theme in in, in the book of Hebrews. Apostasy is not a specific sin that somehow you commit that you lose your salvation. Okay? Let's say a Christian, a true believing Christian um, lies. Is that apostasy? Let's say that a true committed Christian slips up one night and gets drunk and goes out and does something crazy. Does that mean they've committed apostasy? No. If a true committed Christian even maybe commits adultery against somebody, I mean against their husband or wife, does that mean they've committed apostasy? No. Apostasy is not individual sins. It is a persistent, rebellious ongoing, unrepentant, hardness of heart where you dig your heels in and you deliberately keep on sinning and you never desire to repent. And eventually that leads you to fall away. So can a true Christian commit apostasy? And the answer is no. Can people who profess faith in Christ fall away? Yes. But just because you profess faith in Christ doesn't mean you're necessarily a Christian. (coughs) So all through the book of Hebrews, he's been warning, warning, warning. Don't keep on sinning. Don't rebel. Don't harden your heart. Don't drift. And now he gets to the final warning. Here is the fifth and final warning. How, and this is basically the the bottom line, how will one escape God's judgment if you continue to refuse and reject him? Notice what he says there. Back in chapter 12, he says, See that, this is verse 25, See that you do not refuse him who's speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on the earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Reject, refuse, reject. At that time, his voice shook the earth. Okay, at that time, what, what's he keep bringing us back to? Exodus nineteen. He's already brought that up. This whole Old Testament image, Exodus nineteen eighteen. We just looked at it. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. It trembled. The psalmist talks about how God shook the earth and it trembled at Mount Sinai. Psalm sixty-sixty-eight, seven through 8 Oh God, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked. The heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai before God, the God of Israel. So what he's saying is in the Old Testament, at, in Exodus 19, at Mount Sinai, when God spoke, there was a shaking. There was like a trembling, a shaking, and it was a fearful thing. And he's saying, listen, it's going to be a whole lot worse for you. This side of Mount Sinai, if you are a new covenant, quote unquote, Christian, if you persist in unrepentant sin and you refuse and you reject and you rebel, it's going to be a whole lot worse than Mount Sinai it's going to be a whole lot more of a trembling than what you saw at Mount Sinai. There's going to be more fire. There's going to be more quaking. There's going to be more um, drastic of a shaking. And what had happened at Sinai? What happened to that generation? Forty years, they wandered in the wilderness because they hardened their heart. Did they ever get to enter the promised land? No, they did not. So what he's saying here is they did not escape. Verse 26, at that time his voice shook the earth in, 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 in Exodus 19. But now, now he's promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but the heavens. Okay, This is talking about the future. God's saying there's going to come a time when he's going to shake the heavens and the earth. That's a direct prophecy from Haggai chapter 2 verse 6. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. What's he talking about? And what does he say there? The things, look at verse 27, this phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So this shaking that he's talking about, this shaking and this removal is a prophecy about the future day of judgment when God promises to decisively remove all those who oppose him, whether royal thrones, kings, armies, anybody who rebels against him, he will shake. And what does it say? They will not what? They will not remain. Look at the wording there. It, it indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made. In order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So, things are shaken and they're removed. Things are not shaken and they remain. The question then is what remains? Who, who endures the shaking? Who remains after the shaking? God's people. Those of us who are in Christ, have him as our mediator, will not be shaken. We will remain in God's kingdom. We will not be removed by his shaking of the earth in justice and judgment. Okay? Now, here's the thing about it. In light of our escaping God's cataclysmic judgment on the entire earth, huge question. Okay, then how should we respond? If God is going to shake the heavens and the earth, if God shook Mount Sinai, if God is awesome, if God is powerful, if God is wonderful, if we get to await Him in heaven, do we just sit back and say, well, I can live however I want because after all, once saved, always saved. I can do whatever I want. I don't have to repent. I can just live however I want. Is that the response you have to a holy God? No. No. You will keep His commandments. And that's exactly, yeah. And so, Betty, I'm being facetious. So, so, yeah, I know you are. So, you have the right answer. Look at how He ends the, the, the chapter. Look at verse 28. What does He say? Therefore. And we've got to ask the question, what's the therefore therefore? It's therefore to bring everything to a climax. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and... Let us offer to God what? Acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Why? Verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. So here's our response to this awesome God. We will escape judgment. We will remain. We're not going to be destroyed. We will receive heaven. But in light of all that, how do we live now? Thankful worship that is marked by reverence and awe. We should be thankful. And not only thankful, but we should offer to God acceptable worship. Which brings up an interesting question. Is there such a thing as unacceptable worship? Can you worship the right God in the wrong way? Yes. Yes. A lot of people worry that you worship the wrong God. Okay, first commandment of the Ten Commandments. You worship the right God. The second commandment is you can worship the right God in the wrong way. So the word for worship here is very important. The, the Greek word there really means service or lifestyle. It's, it's, it's really more your, your life, your service to God. Not, not just like what we do at a worship service. It really means your your lifestyle is an act of worship. So every aspect of your life is to be acceptable worship, the way you serve God, the way you love God. It's very similar to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2. What does Paul tell us? It's very similar. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, what? Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual Worship, same Greek word there, worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So this worship that we're to give to God is a lifestyle of living in such a way that we're thankful, but then notice how he qualifies it, with reverence and awe. Kind of similar words, a little bit different. Acceptable worship is done in reverence. What is reverence? I think reverence is this whole idea that it's an attitude of humility, an attitude of respect, an attitude of knowing who you are and who God is in His rightful place. Psalm 211, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Not only just reverence, but awe. Do you guys know that the word... There's two words we use. Awesome and awful. What's the, what's, the, what's the key word between both of them? This is some awe and this is full of awe. Okay? Now, they really mean the same thing. Okay? When you're off, when something's awful, we, the way we use it now is, oh, man, that was awful. The way it was used in the old days, it means, man, that was awful in the sense that that filled me with awe. That was awful. We now say, that was awesome. But we can say a lot of things were awesome. Like you can come out of, um, you can come out of River City and say, man, that steak was awesome. <laughs> Or you can go see the new Super I mean the new, yeah, the new Superman versus Batman movie coming out. That was awesome. Okay, are you gonna make that same category with God? Is God awesome like pizza? No. God actually is not just awesome, God is aweful in the good sense of the word. We are to respond to him full of awe. And listen to Isaiah sixty six, one through two. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Interesting wording here. Who does God look for? Those who are humble, who worship Him in awe. So we are thankful. We live a lifestyle of worship. It is with reverence and awe. But why? Verse 29 tells us why. For purpose, our God is a consuming fire. The Old Testament talks about this in Deuteronomy 4, 24. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Now, wait a minute. God's jealous? I thought we weren't supposed to be jealous. How, can God get a, how come God gets a free pass on being jealous? Jealous is what we're not supposed to be. He created yeah. Does it mean that God is green with envy because he, somebody has something he doesn't have? <laughs> no. Yeah, he's got everything. It means He is worthy, He is holy. God is jealous or God is zealous for His name and for His glory. We also find out from Deuteronomy 9, three. Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you, so you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Isaiah 33.14 The sinners in Zion are afraid. Trembling has seized the godless. Who among us can dwell with the consuming fire? Who among us can dwell with everlasting burnings? And the answer is what? Nobody. So let me just ask you a question. The writer of Hebrews has gone to great pains to remind us that Christ is our mediator, and we have direct access to God, and we can approach the throne room, and we have direct access, we have communion, we have um, entrance, we should never, like fear in the sense of dread. With all that being said, does that give us a right to treat God as if He's a buddy? And not the holy consuming fire. Do you think in our culture today, not not the world culture, but the church culture, that we've lost this whole idea of God being a consuming fire? Yeah. We lost the fear of God. I'm not talking about like you're over in a corner crying because you're afraid you're going to get hit by a thunderbolt. But I mean, do we, <laughs> the question is, let's just talk about, let's just talk about a corporate worship service. Now, I'm not saying we're perfect every Sunday and that we, that we don't try hard to do this, but You know, some worship services that you go to, they're so happy, clappy, um, syrupy, whatever, that like if God is mentioned, it's more like he's my boyfriend and I'm going to sing songs that talk about how, you know, you know what I'm saying? Do we actually realize that when we come into like corporate worship, especially that we're approaching the most high God and we come to him through the merits of Christ, but we come to the God who's a consuming fire. And, and do you also thank Him that if He had not saved you, you could be consumed by that fire, and He saved you from that? So I think we just need to have a healthy fear. So here's the dire warning. Here's the fifth warning that, that the writer of Hebrews says. It's his last warning before he's going to address some practical things. He says this, if you refuse, he's talking to his church here, if you refuse and reject this God who has spoken and His mediator Jesus, then you will tremble in overwhelming fear on that final day when He shakes the earth in judgment and you experience the ultimate fire of His wrath and eternal hell. Now, is that a politically correct statement that a lot of people like to hear? That's, and who's He talking to here? He's talking to the church. He's talking to people that profess to be believers. And it's His final warning. He says, listen, if you persist in unrepentant sin... And reject and rebel and rebel and reject and harden and fall away. On that great and final day, there will be a trembling like you've never experienced before. A whole lot worse than what they saw at Mount Sinai. Our God's a consuming fire. You will be shaken and you will not remain. That's his warning. And it's meant to make us go, whoa. That's what a warning does. If a warning doesn't warn, it's not a good warning. Okay? Now, With that being said, let's go into chapter 13. Because it ties together, okay? What has he just told us? Worship God with raw. Worship God with reverence. Live a lifestyle of worship. Be a worshiper. Have a lifestyle worshiper. Be thankful. Uh, God's a consuming fire. and So since God is a consuming fire and we must worship Him with a lifestyle of awe and reverence and thanksgiving, then a huge question is, okay, what does it practically look like? What does it look like to live as a life of a worshiper in the practical nitty-gritty everyday life? How do I live this out? Well, I'm glad you asked, writer of Hebrews, because you're going to address it here with five commands on how to worship God acceptably, and they're all practical, they're all ethical, and they're all just nitty-gritty lifestyle issues. Okay? So let's go see what he says in chapter 13, 1 through 6. Let Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Five practical, nitty-gritty, everyday lifestyle issues where we are to be worshiping the Lord as a lifestyle. And here's number one. Keep on continually loving one Another, when he says, let brotherly love continue, that that word continues in a a Greek tense that means ongoing. Let your brotherly love keep on going. Now, this comes directly from Jesus, doesn't it? What does Jesus tell us in John 13, 34 through 35? A new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you listen to Caleb every day. If you have a fish on the back of your car, if you walk around with a big Bible, what does it say? If you have love for one another. 1 Thessalonians 4, 9. Now concerning brotherly love... You have no need for anyone to write to you for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. 1 Peter 4.8 Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Now let's just stop right there. Number one right out of the chute is got to keep on loving each other. So it begs the question, why is it so hard to do that? Or is it hard? Let's just ask that question. Is it hard to do that? Okay, it can be. What type of love are we talking about here? Treating your neighbor as if you'd want to be treated. Okay. Okay. I saw an example today. Okay. Of unbelievable love. Okay. One human being for another. Okay. In a mobile home park that I own, I had a family of three. a couple and her mother. And the man died, and the women are in terrible financial trouble. And my park manager called some churches and told me about this. One man in one of these churches gave $1,900 to these women to alleviate this terrible problem. For women. And that's it. Yeah, hey, that's and that's a perfect example. I can stand up here all day and say, I love you guys. But until I actually back it up with action, is it true love? No. Okay. You know, it's the old DC talk song. What is it? Love is a verb. How do you spell love? How do you spell love? <laughs> T-I-M-E. That was my old pastor used to say. I never could quite get it because it didn't match up. No. <laughs> love is... T- basically, what, it, what we're talking about here is he's saying, listen, one of the chief ways you worship God as a lifestyle in the body of Christ and outside the body of Christ as you continue to show brotherly love. When it's hard, when it's difficult, when you're not getting reciprocal love back, one of the marks, Jesus says, how is the world going to know that we're truly Christians? By our love, okay, by our love. And so it's got to be concrete, it's got to be specific. Um, It can't just be, I'm saying I love you. If I told Dawn like every day I loved her, but I never did anything for her, Like, she's over there slaving over the kitchen, and she's doing the laundry, and she comes home after a long day of working at school, and um, she's got to deal with Zachary and um, all this kind of stuff and help Aiden with his homework. And I'm just kind of sitting on the couch watching TV, and I, oh, I love you, Dawn. (laughs) And she's doing everything. What's she going to be thinking? Uh Words are cheap, Sean. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) So we got to show it. So let brotherly love continue. Let it keep on continuing to be part of your worship okay so that's that's number 1 let brotherly love continue now here's the second one that's really i think probably more difficult don't neglect to continually show hospitality to strangers ooh that's interesting i have a problem with that one do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers oh i have okay Turn to Matthew chapter 25 for a minute. Keep your finger in Hebrews, but turn to Matthew chapter 25. You know, this is the end of the age when Jesus is going to separate the sheep from the goats at the final judgment. And I want you just to listen to what Jesus says. Matthew twenty-five thirty-one 31, through the end of the chapter. It's we're, a long section here. You're probably familiar with this, but I just want to read it. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another. as shepherds sep- shepherd, separates the sheep from the gro- goats. He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left. And the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty or give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you and naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these brothers, you did it to me. And then he goes on to say that the the unrighteous didn't do that. Okay. So what are some things Jesus says there? You welcomed the stranger. You visited somebody in prison. What does he say right here? In Hebrews, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers because if you neglect to do that, you may actually be treating Jesus that way. Yeah, we'll get to that in just a minute. <laughs> Luke 14, 12-14. Jesus is going to tell a parable about how we treat strangers, how we, how we welcome, how we show hospitality. He, he also said to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you and in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. How does that talk about hospitality? hospitality is a hard thing because what does it mean it doesn't just mean opening your home as hard as that may be it means is your whole lifestyle one of being willing to sacrifice your personal time and needs to help others in need and to welcome them into your life that's really what hospitality means it means you welcome somebody into your life no matter how that looks in our 21st century privatized northeastern colorado farming culture that's really hard isn't it i'm just speaking to our culture I'll be real honest with you guys. In the 11 years I've been pastor here, there's been very, I want to say few, few and far between, but I have not, Don and I have not been invited to a lot of people's homes. Now, we've had people over at our house a lot, but I'm just seeing that in our culture here, I don't know if it's a northeastern Colorado thing or what, some people do not open their homes to each other. And I don't know why that's the case, we came from Colorado Springs where it was a totally different culture where everybody was in everybody's home all the time. Just different culture. Yeah. I mean, we were in somebody's home every week, I mean, sometimes twice a week. Um, and I know we're geographically challenged out here because some of you live way out on farms and ranches and stuff. And I'm not trying to, to, to bring condemnation or guilt. I'm just saying, are we, are we showing hospitality not just to strangers? Are we showing hospitality to each other? I mean, that, let's start there, and then let's get to strangers, because what does he say there? You, you may have entertained an angel unaware. Now, don't ask me how to unpack all that. I just know it's there. Are there angels? Yes. Do they usually appear like men? Yes. Yes. Standing on the road asking for money, she always gave him money. Um, the "I don't know if anyone knows the homeless guy that walks around Walmart." Mm-hmm. Man, mm-hmm. She's bought him a new jacket and stuff like that. And um, one of my kids had asked why she, she's doing that. She said, "Because you never know; he could be an angel. Mm-hmm. God could be testing us." Mm-hmm. There's a story in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 18. And maybe for the sake of time, we won't go there. But if you remember Genesis 18, these three guys show up to Abraham and he says, come on in to my tent and I'll, you know, Sarah will bake some cakes for you and we'll eat. And what does he find out? These three guys are angels. So Abraham entertained angels unaware. Um, So I don't really know what all that means. I don't think we're, we're never supposed to worship angels. We're not supposed to be on the lookout for angels the, the the command here is not the command here is not go look for angels. That's not what the command is. What's the command? Show hospitality to strangers. In the in and some may at times some may be angels, and sometimes it doesn't. The point is you're to keep on showing hospitality to strangers. Um, which I think is a hard thing in our culture. Let's be honest, I'm not good at it. I find it hard. Especially if you're more of an introvert, the last thing you want to do is go up and talk to a stranger. Remember that Oh, yeah. To oh, it's yeah. easy if you are going to benefit. That's what, that, that's what Jesus is saying. And when you're through a banquet, you're going to benefit. If, like if you invite rich people and your friends, they're going to obviously come. What's hard is to invite the people that would never show up. Yeah. And let's ask a question about our church. Is our church hospitable? Are we welcoming people that would never darken the doors of this church? Do we project a friendly and a welcoming atmosphere for anybody that walks through the doors? Yes, you do. Well, I hmm. felt that Okay, well, just something to think about. I just know that the old Rick Springfield song, Don't Talk to Strangers, is, um, (laughs) you know, when you grow up, don't talk to strangers. And obviously, you need to use some wisdom. You need to use some wisdom in this, okay? Um, Because there are people out there that will take advantage of you, and you just need to use some wisdom, okay? All right, let's look at number three. The third thing, and this is really contextual to the writer of Hebrews and what was going on in their church. Um, What does he say there? He says, verse 3, remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. What was going on in this church? Well, we have to go back to chapter 10, go back to chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. He's already alluded to this. He said, in, in chapter 10, verse 32, he says, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated for you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Evidently, in the church, there were people that were thrown into prison. Why were they thrown into prison? For being a Christian. they were. This wasn't... Visiting those in prison here was not like prison ministry in the sense that, you know, we go into the prison and we do prison ministry because there's prisoners there. Yes, we do that. In the context of Hebrews, this is some people from the church. Notice what he says there. Look at what he says. Since you are also in the body, there were some in the body of Christ, some in the church, like it would be like half of our church was in prison. And it would be very easy to neglect them and to not go visit them and to not want to associate with them. Because what would that mean? Well, that means I may get thrown in prison. So, yes, Brent. In most foreign countries, prison means that your family is the one that has to provide for you. Yeah. Bring food and mm-hmm. Yeah, this was back before our prison system. Yeah, This and so in the context of Hebrews, immediately to the original readers, this was not... A, um, yeah, let's have a, let's do, let's do angel tree each year and, and do gifts to the prisoners. Not that, I mean, we do that, and that's important. This was, hey, there's some in the church that are being in prison right now because of their faith. We got to make sure that they're part of the body. We need to go minister to them. Now, by extension, I think you can make the application that, yes, it's important for us to go visit people in prison. I mean, half, I'm going to say half of you, but a lot of you in this room work at the prison. Somebody, the last thing you want to do is go visit a prisoner when you work there. But, I mean, we have prison and jail ministries and things like that. So I think that the principle is if somebody within the body of Christ is suffering, the body of Christ needs to rally around and not forget them and encourage them and be with them. Okay? So really practical so far. What? Love. Being, welcoming to strangers, hospitality. Make sure that you visit those in prison. And then he's going to start meddling. Number four, what does he say? Honor God with sexual purity. Look at verse 4. Let marriage be held in honor. That word honor, held in honor, was often used of precious stones that were highly valued, like the crown jewels. It's, it kind of shows up in the Old Testament too, especially with the adulterous woman. In Proverbs 6.26 for the price of a prostitute is only a loaf of bread, but a married woman hunts down a precious life. So he says two things here. Number one, honor the marriage bed. And when he's talking about bed, let the marriage bed be undefiled. He's, I mean, you know what he means by that. He's not like talking about the literal bed. He's talking about sexual issues. So let marriage be honored. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge who? The sexually immoral and the adulterous. Okay, so you've got two. You've got sexually immoral and adulterous. There's two words really for sexual sin in the Bible. There's the word porneia or pornaya, and there's the word moikoi, Um Pornea deals with any type of sexual immorality that is outside the bounds of or before marriage. So this would include sex before marriage. It would include any type of bestiality, homosexuality, any type of sex of an unmarried person. Moikoi is adultery. This is sex outside of the marriage. And so either way you look at it, He's combining these two different Greek words and saying, God will judge that. Now, does that mean that there's never forgiveness if you've committed any of these sexual sins? That's not what he's saying. It goes back to that whole unrepentant. If you live an unrepentant sexual sin as a lifestyle, what does he say there? I'm not saying it. What does he say? God will what? Judge. Okay? Now, let's just look at some scriptures that talk about this. Romans 13, 13. Let us walk properly as in the daytime... Not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. So walking properly, Paul tells us to do that. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 is probably the most famous one. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, okay, pornaya, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, moikoi. Nor men who practice homosexuality. So you've got the two the two Greek words there. Ephesians 5, 5. For you may be sure of this that everyone who's sexually immoral or impure or or who's covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. I mean it's all throughout the Bible. And even in Revelation chapter twenty-one, verse eight. But as for the cowardly the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, before we just move on from that passage of Scripture, does that mean that if you tell a lie, you're going to be, spend eternity in the lake of fire? Does that mean that if you're cowardly, like you're the cowardly lion, you're going to spend eternity in hell? If you commit idolatry once in a while. What's it saying there? Again, it goes back to unrepentant lifestyle. If you are in unrepentant lifestyle of any of those judgments coming, and that's what he's saying. So practically, he's saying, how do you live a life of worship? You, you live sexually pure. So number one, you got to love. Number two, got to be a hospital strangers. Number three, take care of each other, visit each other in prison. Number four, sexual purity. And then number five, he moves from preaching, to meddling, to really interfering and getting you all crazy, okay? What's the last thing he says here? Where it really hurts, do not be consumed with the love of money. What does he say there? Verse 5, keep your life free from love of money. He does not say keep your life free from money. Can Can we live in a world that has no money? Can't do that. It's the love of money. And then he says be content with what you have. What does Jesus say in Matthew 6, 24? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. 1 Timothy 6, 6-10 Godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. <coughs> Excuse me. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. You can't say it any better than what Paul says right there. Yes, Risa. Like Brock Osweiler? Oh, I'm, still, no, I'm, just, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said it. I'm sorry. Go ahead. That was awesome. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> no, but I mean, so they're falling into that. Case, so they can't... Well, problem. I... Okay. We, we've got to be careful not to impugn somebody's character. If, if you live in a world... Okay, let's just say if you live in a world where the, where the average salary for your job is in the millions... And you're quibbling between 15 million and 12 million. I'm, sorry. I'm, not, I'm just saying that I don't want to automatically say that an athlete who asks for more money, you know, I, I think you just need to be careful. It's it's one thing to look at an athlete and say, why are you complaining about not getting paid millions of dollars? It's another thing to look at yourself and say, am I struggling with the love of money? It's very easy to look at somebody else and say they're, they've got the love of money. I think the, most, the important thing is like even with the, the amount of money I have, am I still craving? The issue is, what does he say there? Are you content? That's the, that's the key word there. Are you content? Notice what he says there in, in Hebrews. He says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Same thing that Paul says up there. Be content. And then in Philippians 4, this is what Paul says. We often take Philippians 4.13 out of context, but listen to what the context is. Not that I am speaking of being in need, (coughs) for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. (coughs) Excuse me. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Now, what do we often quote? Hebrews 4. I mean, Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What's in the context of being content with what you have not being consumed by the love of money now it's interesting yes dale We need to make sure that we understand that it isn't money yeah of <coughs> exactly yeah because yeah, you can't you cannot exist in this world without money um, you need money, money's not a bad and money's not inherently bad. You need money to buy stuff, you need money for food, you need to save money, you need to purchase it's that's not the issue. The issue is do you love it? Are you consumed by it and are you always finding yourself discontent? I think that's the real issue. So are they do you basically talk talking about the ones that go gamble? Go gamble. No, like when they go ones that have gambling problems with their money. I would say somebody that gambles a lot probably has has a problem with money. Because they're not content. Yeah, yeah, they're not content. They're always trying to find the next whatever. Listen to what um, contentment is based upon. Why can we be content? The writer of Hebrews tells us, verse 5, Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have for, here's the reason, He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, I will never leave you and forsake you. The way that's worded in the original language is really contains what we call a double negative. It's the strongest, most emphatic way of saying this. It's almost translated, God will never, no, never, ever leave you nor forsake you. It's a really strong strong wording there. Um, the word forsake is interesting because it's the same word that Jesus cried out on the cross in Matthew Chapter 27, 46, about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lamestick, bachthony, that is my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? So on the cross, Jesus was forsaken for us so that we would never have to be forsaken. I will never leave. I will never forsake you. What did God say to uh, Jacob in Genesis 28, 15? Behold, I am with you and I will keep you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you. Until I have done what I have promised you. I will not leave you. Deuteronomy 31, 6 through8, God's getting Abraham, I mean, getting Moses ready to, to, to be off the scene and for Joshua to lead the people over. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Then Moses summoned Joshua and said to him in the sight of all Israel, Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land that the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them. I will never leave or forsake you. And then he quotes from Psalm 118, 6-7 down there. So we can confidently say the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. That's the definition of contentment, is it not? I'm not going to fear. Because what can man do to me? Really, what can man do to me? Nothing that God doesn't allow and nothing that God's not going to get me through. And that's from Psalm 118, 6-7. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. The Lord's on my side. The Lord will never leave me. The Lord will never forsake me. Most of the money problems that people have or the love of money problems is because they doubt the provision of God and they doubt the presence of God and they feel somehow that they're not content with just the presence and provision of God. They've got to have something else. So, here's the bottom line as we close tonight. Because we have a mediator in Christ Jesus and we have the blessings of a kingdom that cannot be shaken... We should worship Him with a lifestyle of love, generosity, hospitality, compassion, sexual purity, and godly contentment. That's kind of a summary of those those six verses in Hebrews chapter 13. In other words, one of the strongest evidences that you are persevering to the end with a lifestyle of worship is that you consistently demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. Hebrews 13, 1-6 is just another way of talking about living in the fruit of the Spirit. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Galatians 5, 22-24. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So basically what the writer of Hebrews does is he gives a strong warning about falling away, and it says, listen, our, your lifestyle is to be a lifestyle of worship, and here's what it looks like practically in these areas. And, and you, when, you, when you really flesh it out and step back and get a bird's eye view, a lifestyle of worship is really a demonstration of the fruit of the Spirit.